Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be bringing Matthew and Simon together. Let's begin today in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, beginning in the first verse, it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth, and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Here we find the name of the twelve disciples, the twelve men that God chose for the special purpose of being his closest followers. There's two specifically that we need to look at today. There's a lot that we can learn from them. The first one that we need to look at is Simon the Canaanite. In Luke 6 and 15 it says, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes. Both of these titles are derived from the same word in the Greek. They not only denote that he was originally from Canaan, but the word itself meant to be zealous. That's a unique title. We know that all of them had zeal for serving God and doing the will of God. We know that they were all disciplined learners and dedicated followers of Jesus. So why is it only Simon who's called zealous? The reason is because the zeal referred to isn't a zeal for God although he definitely had that and acted upon it. The title of Zealot was a reference to a political movement that he'd previously been associated with to the point where it defined him. The church historian Josephus tells us that there were four main political groups in first century Israel. Those were the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. We all know about the legalistic Pharisees, and we're all familiar with the Sadducees, who taught that there was no resurrection. We may not be as familiar with the Essenes, They were another sect of Judaism that believed themselves to be the true remnant of Israel that was holding on to the true covenant of God without distorting it or losing its original meaning. It's believed by many scholars that John the Baptist was the most notable Essene during the time of Christ. We'll look at them more closely at another time. As it relates to the last group, the Zealots, many Christians aren't familiar with them at all. So we need to ask ourselves, who were these Zealots and what exactly were they zealous about? The Zealots were very different than the other free groups. They were the most politically active and involved of the Jews. The Zealots had quickly become a notorious movement of Jewish patriots who made it their goal to overthrow the Roman government. They showed their zeal for this goal through often using political intimidation, violence, and terror. They were known more for their hatred and resentment of the Roman government than anything else. It was their defining characteristic, and that hatred was the catalyst for their zeal. Their anger stemmed from what they saw as the illegitimate occupation of the Roman government and the Jewish homeland. This anger led them to become violent extremists with, as Josephus said, an insatiable passion for liberty. Their bitter hatred of Rome and their intense love and zeal for their home led to their zeal being misdirected and misappropriated. They fought their zeal, even though becoming violent, with serving God. This is an example of Romans 10 and 2, which says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. The Living Bible's version says, I know what enthusiasm they have for the honor of God, but it is misdirected zeal. The Zealots didn't content themselves with just voicing their opinions and objections. They went much further. 
Some of them, the more extreme ones, would attack Roman soldiers, go after politicians and other government workers, and they would even attack Jews who were simply friendly to the Roman Empire. They were even known for burning different targets that they would select, which only heightened their visibility and made the Roman government take note of their presence. The man who founded this movement was named Judas. He was a Galilean, and he had himself led an act of rebellion against the Roman government in 6 AD. In the aftermath of this, not surprisingly, Rome was vigilant in watching for any potential uprisings or any prospective messiah that would come out of Galilee, viewing such an event as only a continuance of the original revolt. This was one of the reasons of the intense hatred that was shown to Jesus by the Romans and especially by those of Galilee, one reason why the greatest prophet was without honor in his hometown. When it came to Jesus and his ministry, the man who claimed to be king of the Jews and the son of God, Many were under the impression that he was going to set up a new Jewish kingdom and take back control of the land from Rome. In Acts 1 and 6, referring to the disciples, it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This was something that the zealots had been hoping for for a long time. But as we know, that wasn't the Lord's purpose. After the original revolt in 6 AD, the zealots then took their movement underground, they started doing their work with more secrecy. The men involved were far more selective about how, where, and when they worked, and they chose to do far more covert attacks on individual targets. That was the way they were operating at the time that we meet Simon for the first time, and the fact that he's labeled as a zealot, even though most of their work was being done in the dark, shows that he was most likely one of the more extreme ones. Besides Simon, we had to look at another disciple. In verse 4, Matthew chapter 10, we found Matthew the publican, who is also referred to as Levi in other passages. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew 9 and 9 told us, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. As a tax collector, he was an employee of the Roman government. Merchants, farmers, and other importers would often import goods into the area, and Matthew's job was to collect the import duties on those objects, as well as to collect income tax and other levies that the Roman government established. Rome was notorious for placing a larger-than-reasonable financial burden upon their subjects, and on top of that already hard burden, the vast majority of tax collectors were known to take more than required and keep the leftover as their quote-unquote commission. The Roman citizens, especially the Jewish Romans, began to resent the tax collectors. They viewed them as making the Romans richer while they made their fellow Jews poor. And with the extra money that they were taking off the top, they viewed them as not only enriching Rome, but also enriching themselves. This meant that the people automatically passed judgment on the character of these men, seeing them in an uncharitable light. No one except the other tax collectors and government officials were friends of the tax collector. All men were his enemies. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in the ninth verse, it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. 
And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James, and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord, in prayer and supplication, with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Verse 14 told us, They all continued with one accord, in prayer and supplication, with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. The word in Greek from one accord means, with one mind, unanimously, at the same time. The concordance also says that it means, with the same passion, having the same desires. It describes people who share a like precious faith, creating a God-produced unity between them. Here they have the same mind, the Lord's thoughts, because each receives the same revelation of his word. In the upper room, we found both Matthew and Simon, which means that these two men were in one accord with each other. That's incredible when we see that these were two vastly different men. They were direct opposites, the direct antithesis of each other. One was a loyal government employee, a tax collector for Rome, and the other was a political activist, a violent extremist, who wanted to tear down and overthrow Rome. Some of the more extreme zealots were even known to try to assassinate tax collectors. Not only were they hated by each other, they were also hated by others. Matthew especially bore the brunt of it. Everyone hated tax collectors, but Simon was also viewed in a suspicious or even criminal light by many who didn't share his same ideology or tendency towards violence. Their ideologies were so different, so opposed, that their philosophies couldn't be any further apart. How did these two men, who were once bitter enemies, end up in the upper room being in one accord? That's an important question. Because answering it isn't just important for having a better understanding of Scripture, although that's definitely true. It's also important for what we see in front of us right now, especially as we go into the new year. In the United States, and really in almost every other nation in the world right now, there are two ideologies that have arisen, and they're diametrically opposed to each other. There's no consensus between them, no agreement, no common ground. They're completely polarized, heading in opposite directions. When this happens, the result is inevitably the same. It's borne out by history and just by logic. Both viewpoints continue to grow and spread and then get to a point where one must yield to the other. Otherwise, society and a nation can be irreparably torn apart. When you have people that not only disagree with one another, but hate and resent one another and are willing to use violence or terror or political intimidation to force their will on everyone else, things can't go on like that forever. They may last for a season, but that season ends, and usually it ends abruptly and in a cataclysmic style. We find it all around us. The days are long gone when people could just agree to disagree and argue things out civilly. Now in place of that, we find hatred for our fellow men. We find no one willing to listen to each other, no one willing to talk things out, no one willing to look past themselves. We're living in a self-ensconced, narcissistic, godless era, so it's no surprise that people would be so set against each other. The ideologies that have taken hold of our country cannot dwell together. Like oil and water, they don't mix. One will inevitably and invariably rise above the other. The Greek poet Homer wrote, Wolves and lambs do not have hearts to agree with each other. That's true, and it's true in both the spiritual sense and in the natural. We all see it. We all feel deep within our spirit that we're moving towards something, that things can't go on like this forever. We know something's wrong. So then what's next? How do you bring Matthew and Simon together? The first mistake that people make is thinking that there's a political solution to our problem. With the state of division we face today, there is no political path forward. 
That doesn't mean that God won't raise up great politicians who do great good for our land. He has many times before, and he will again. And that doesn't mean that great policies won't be enacted that are a great blessing to people. But our salvation, our unity, our victory will never be found in politics. It doesn't matter who gets into office or who stays in office or how long they stay there. It doesn't matter because that's not what's going to fix the issue. That may cover the symptoms, but it won't cure the illness. Matthew and Simon weren't brought together because of politics. Politics was what kept them apart. There was no political change. The Zealots weren't disbanded and Rome wasn't overthrown. So it wasn't a political change that brought unity. It was a spiritual change. The mistake that we made as a nation, as a culture, and as a society to systematically remove God from our civil discourse has effects and we're only now reaping what we've sown. Since we've removed God, it's no wonder that we look to politics and government for a solution. It's no wonder why we look to them for unity. They've become our nation's idol, the politicians became our prophets, and the policies became our covenant. In the absence of God, we have to look for some source for our spiritual needs, and the devil is all too happy to offer his counterfeits behind the guise of a beneficent government. If we're waiting for a political change to bring unity again, we'll be sadly disappointed. It's good and it's necessary for Christians to be involved in government. If more Christians had been, we wouldn't have gone to the point that we're at now. But it should never become our God or a source of salvation. It's only a means to an end, not an end in itself. Earlier, when we looked at the definition in one accord, it said, People who share like precious faith, creating a God-produced unity between them. This is the solution. Jesus is the solution. And that's more than just a quaint saying. That's the truth. It's in Him that we find peace, in Him that we find unity, and in Him that we find victory. And victory always brings unity. He's the sole, the one and the only, the never-changing source. If we don't find these things in Him, we won't find them. It's that simple. There's no natural solution that'll be sufficient. It must be spiritual. It must be of God. It said God produced unity. The first thing that we have to note about that phrase is the wording. It's not man produced unity. It's God produced, which means that it's not the work of man. It's the work of God. And that's for a reason. If it was all man's doing, he would foolishly try to take all the glory for himself, which puts us right back to where we started. But since God does it, he rightly gets all the glory. So how does unity come about? 2 Peter 1 and 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained a like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Obtained, and many other versions, is translated as received. Our job is simply to receive this faith that we're being offered. This is the faith we receive when we become born again, when we invite Christ into our heart. As Christians, it's our faith that unites us. Ephesians 4 and 13 says, so we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The phrase come to in the Greek means to come down to, to reach, to arrive at, to reach my destination, to come down, descend by inheritance to an heir. This gets to the heart of what's really going on today. We have a spiritual sickness in our land, a spiritual disease that's ripped us apart. It's torn the fabric of our nation. And every time we try to patch up the tear with politics, just like the Lord told us in the gospel, the rent only becomes worse. Only God, the same God who knit us together in our mother's womb, can mend what's been torn. Only He can bring Matthew and Simon together. 
People all over this country, and in every country of the world, on both sides of the ideological divide, deep down in their spirit, want peace, they want unity, they want salvation, but they don't know where to go to find it. Maybe they've never been told, maybe they're fighting what they know to be true, but either way, the desire is there. Since they don't go to God, they still reach for it, but they reach towards the government to try to find it, the same way that many others reach towards money or relationships or other people. They want unity, they want consensus, but they're looking for a natural solution to a supernatural problem. Not finding it discourages, disillusions, and disheartens them. Then people begin to feel no hope, seeing no solution to the problem that eats at them inwardly. They start to feel desperation, which can quickly manifest in violence. A desperate man is always a dangerous man. When you can't seem to find a solution outside of yourself, you start to turn inwards, making the self an idol and source of salvation, because they feel that the only thing they can control or trust is the self, which makes it so that anything outside the self, anything that doesn't affirm, support, and exalt the self, becomes an enemy that can't be trusted, an enemy that's actively working against them, which is one of the main reasons why we not only find such a large narcissistic population, but why we find that same population far more inclined to act on their ideas in a violent way, using terror and intimidation to achieve their will instead of the traditional methods of discussion and persuasion. The only way to reach that destination of salvation, that destination of unity, is to reach it through Jesus. John 14 and 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus told us in John 10 and 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He's the way. He's the door. Because he's God. He's what we're looking for as a nation. He's the only one who can restore us to what we should be. It's not only God's will for there to be unity. God's will itself is what births unity. All that these different ideologies are, are just different wills that man's adhering to. It's either the enemy's will, their own will, or God's will, and these opposing wills clash against each other. The solution is being transformed by God. Romans 12 and 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. When we adhere to God's will, when His will becomes ours, we will be united together. It'll be impossible not to be. We'll all have the same desires, the same passions, the same faith. That's what changed Matthew and Simon. They now had God's will, and the result was that the two bitter enemies became loving brothers. So what can we personally do to do our part in bringing Matthew and Simon together? We can do something that they both learned firsthand. In Matthew 5 and 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's a hard, uncomfortable saying. There's nothing easy about that, but we must do it. We have to love those around us, even the people we disagree with, even the people we find no common ground with, even the people we couldn't possibly ever see ourselves uniting with. Because just like Matthew and Simon, we may find that soon we'll be in one accord with them, united in faith, and our enemy will no longer be our enemy, but a brother that we love in the unity of the faith. Today can be a new day, a new beginning, a new start for our nation, a time for the Matthews and the Simons to be brought together, a time when division crumbles and unity rises in its place. But it takes all of us to refuse to give in to the bitter hatred of the age and choose to live in agape love even and especially towards our enemies. Second Chronicles 7 and 14 says, 
If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. The fate of the nation is in the hands of God's people. We should pray for our country, and we should thank Him in advance that He's healed our land and restored unity for our nation. And we should make the choice, no matter what, to live in love. Colossians 3 and 14 in the English Standard Version says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Before we close today, we have a special announcement. This week, we've launched our new YouTube channel called Kingsword. You can find it by typing at Kingsword Ministry into the YouTube search bar. We've also launched our brand new podcast called The Treasury of Solomon, where we go verse by verse through the book of Proverbs. Right now, it's available on YouTube, and it'll also be available on all podcast directories in the upcoming weeks. And we've launched our new TikTok and Instagram pages. We would greatly appreciate it if you like what we're doing and want to support us further, that you check us out on all these platforms and subscribe and follow to help the King's Word reach more and more people. Let's close in prayer. Lord, today we thank you that you've united us together in faith with our fellow believers. Lord, we thank you that it's not your will for us to live divided, separate, and apart from each other. Lord, we thank you that it's not your will for us to be hateful and resentful towards our neighbor. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the spirit of love, your Holy Spirit, because you are love. And now that you dwell within us, Lord, give us the wisdom to allow that agape love within us to rise to the surface and manifest as we reach out in love to our fellow neighbors. Lord, we thank you that it's your will for unity to be between us. And Lord, we ask for the strength and the courage to love our enemies, even when it feels that we can't do it in the natural, even when it's something that our natural mind doesn't want to go along with. Lord, we thank you that we're going to be able to push past all those reservations and hesitations that we have and do what your will is calling us to do. Lord, we thank you that today is a day when the Matthews and Simons are being brought together, when they're coming into one accord with each other. Lord, we rebuke the division. We rebuke the bitter hatred that the enemy has stoked between our fellow men. And Lord, we thank you that in its place, unity will rise. Lord, no matter what country we're listening to this from now, Lord, we bring our nation before you on the altar. We lay it before you as a sacrifice. And Lord, we ask you to heal our land. And Lord, we thank you in advance that you have healed our land and that you have brought us into unity again. And Lord, for all the things that you have done, all the things that you're doing right now, and all the incredible, amazing, great things that you have set apart for your people in the days ahead, Lord, we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to live in love and have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for His forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for His free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. Thank you for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you want even more of the Kingsword, you can go to our YouTube page at Kingsword Ministry, visit our TikTok page at Kingsword Bible, or visit our Instagram page at Kingsword Bible Study. Remember to subscribe, like, and comment below so that more people can hear the Kingsword for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.